So good evening, everybody, and welcome to the third in a series of five honest conversations about race and how we can all move forward together. Um, as most of you know, I'm Jeannie Johnson. I'm the founder of Ridgewood Walks and Ridgewood Talks. Ridgewood Walks provides free guided themed walking tours of Ridgewood, and the podcast Ridgewood Talks is where we interview the leaders and legends of our village and where we dig into the town's hot topics. We also provide community forums to discuss current events that affect the health and well-being of our community. The purpose of these initiatives is to create a more connected and vibrant community. Um, our conversation tonight will likely travel around all kinds of topics, but one of the things I'd like to focus on is truly how we can move forward together. Um, I had an interesting experience this past Saturday at a protest organized by some Ridgewood High School graduates, and we'll get into that a little later, but suffice it to say, I believe that their intentions were pure and that they genuinely want to make a positive impact on society, and I applaud them for it. Um, I would very, very much like to work with them because as we all know, fighting for racial equality is a lifelong endeavor. And those of us in the white community have no real idea of how to go about this work. We need guidance from experienced members of the black community, and we need to know how and where we should give of ourselves. And when we're out there being in service, we should be mindful of the impact we're making. Is our movement helpful? Are we open-minded? Do we really wanna move the needle forward or are we doing these things because it just kind of feels good? Our goal should be, as I said to Mac during our first segment, to keep our foot carefully on the gas. We can't afford to lose momentum if we wanna see systemic and institutional change. So all of us should be locking arms and pushing this agenda forward together. So that said, we're gonna delve into that topic and many others tonight. Our guest is my friend and fellow dog lover, uh, Arturo Lewis. Uh, Arturo is a professor who teaches diversity studies, including social problems and institutional racism in America. And a fun fact is, or fun facts, are he is a former radio host and a host and a semi-professional baseball player. He serves on the board of the Ridgewood YMCA and has de dedicated much of his work to diversity and inclusion by helping others build and sustain uh, equitable communities. Um, Arturo is a graduate of Princeton Thea Theological Seminary and is an associate pastor at Emmanuel Church here in Ridgewood. So he and Professor Pastor Mac Brandon will engage in a lovely conversation tonight. And we can once again thank Sarah Lindsay from the Unitarian, Unitarian Society for the tech help, because none of this could happen without her. Uh, she, Sarah's going to be our guest in conversation next week, providing I can learn how to do the back end stuff. But uh, so now for a couple of quick notes. Like always, everyone should be muted. Everyone will be muted throughout this conversation, but you are welcomed and encouraged to ask questions via the chat bar found on the bottom of your screen. And we're going to try to get to all of the questions, but if we miss you, we'll forward them on to Mac and Arturo and we'll get back to you. So Mac, please take it from here. Hello, everyone. It's good to see you again for this, our third week. As you were speaking, Jeannie, I said to myself, perhaps we missed one guest, and that should have been you, <laughs> because you articulate so well uh, some of the things, some of our aspirations. Um, the hope of these five weeks 
is that things are being said that resonate uh, in and with you uh, and in hopes of you then going to the next, next step of doing your part. Uh, you know, something that perhaps the, the guest said last week or uh, that Reverend Lewis will say this week, um, there may be one thing that you can take and run uh, with it. Um, so we can't solve everything because it's such an engulfing um, issue and it, it permeates every aspect of our society. It's been with us since the inception of this society. So it certainly won't go away in a week. And what we want to do is draw from the different personas who are speaking and find our way. Uh, and it is with that that I welcome our, our Reverend and Professor uh, Arturo Lewis. Um, I had just found him to be uh, loquacious, to be uh, eloquent, uh, to be a snappy and smart thinker, a deep thinker. And it is entirely a pleasure to be able to spend these few minutes with him. So hopefully um, we find our way into uh, uh, a few sweet spots of conversation uh, that you then uh, can walk away saying, listen, I, I kind of know my way and where I want to go. So without any further ado, uh, Reverend uh, Arturo Lewis, uh, it is so nice to have you. Pleasure is all mine. I'm so glad to be with you, Mac, and with each one of you. I too hope that we uh, get something out of our time gathered here this evening that will enrich us and help us to move forward uh, better than we would have if we were not gathered in this space. The older I get, the longer I teach, and the more I attempt to preach, uh, students and listeners have asked me to, to share a bit more about who I am, where, where I come from, because without that part of the work that I do, for some of them, I come across perhaps sounding like just another talking head. And, I, and I'm encouraged and inspired by that request, especially when it's made of, by young people, because uh, sometimes what I observe is when um, uh, older persons, and by older I mean persons who are in their middle years and uh, beyond, attempt to uh, ask questions or respond to whatever the current events are. Sometimes younger persons, be they millennials or Gen Z, look at us with eyes crossed and then ask, how can you know anything? What do you know? Well, uh, I often start by sharing that I was born and raised in the hood when they used to call it the ghetto. And uh, due to circumstances beyond my control, when my parents decided that they could no longer live together, I grew up in uh, relative poverty, sometimes abject poverty, for most of uh, my adolescence. And not very far from here, uh, right down the road in Patterson. Uh, in 1980, Patterson was considered the fourth poorest middle-sized city in the country. I lived in the fourth ward, which was considered one of the most dangerous wards to live in the United States of America. Uh, by the grace of God, uh, I'm thankful that I managed to uh, maneuver my way around some of the difficulties that I was confronted with, whether it was gang involvement, uh, uh, drug use. Uh, what grabbed me and pulled me in was activities uh, through the church that I was a part of, 
uh, sports, without a doubt, and my interest in learning, uh, education. And so I'm very thankful and grateful for those uh, platforms and for the many people, uh, people that we would now describe as mentors who decided to take it upon themselves to pull me aside or point me in the direction that they thought would be most helpful. So by way of background, uh, I'm driven by a lot of the work that I do because of my own life's uh, experience. I teach institutional racism. That's one of the primary courses that I teach each semester. And in that course, what we attempt to do is look at institutional racism in America through the lens of both sociology and history, right? So it's a socio-historical approach. We're trying to understand uh, what happened and how what happened has impacted people's lives. So the famed uh, and noted historian Carter G. Woodson uh, once stated that a people without a history are a people without a future. And he made that statement as the founder of what ultimately became uh, Black History Month, not only for uh, people of African descent, but for people who are people who all have a history, right? And so in this course, we look at major moments in America's history or its development, right? Uh, we, we look at the antebellum period, right? That era uh, before the Civil War, when enslavement of people of African descent was prominent. Uh, we look at the Reconstruction era, Jim Crow era, civil rights movement, post-World War II civil rights movement, and then will we find ourselves in this modern era. And so by looking at each of those periods and best understanding as critical thinkers what happened during those times, why it happened, how it impacted people's lives, especially the most oppressed, the most dis disenfranchised, disadvantaged persons, that's the sociological element that can help us to better understand how in the world we got to where we are, right? So let's just take one for a quick minute. And Matt, you have to give me the timer because I know that this is an introduction and then we're gonna segue right to uh, our Q&A period, so. Yeah, you're sounding good, sounding good. I can press on the brakes at any moment. I, okay. So if, 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 we're looking, if we're looking at the, uh, the, the period of, of, of enslavement, right? Uh, those of us who know that understand that that was a horrific era. And we also know that there is no way that we can explain our way around that and justify it in any way, right? I'm thinking of the uh, uh, presidential historian, Doris Kearns Goodwin, who said that the founding fathers to a man, and, and you notice I said to a man because she didn't say to a woman, she said to a man, uh, referring mostly to Washington, Franklin, and Jefferson. She said, to a man, each one knew that the institution of slavery was morally wrong, but economically profitable. And so that free labor system established the wealth of a very new nation. America is a baby in comparison to other developed countries, right? How do we, how do we get to where we are? Because we had a head start, right? Because we used free, a free labor system. What Brian Stevenson says about the institution of slavery is that beyond all of the oppression, kidnapping, 
physical, mental torture, uh, raping of women and men, the separation of families. What the institution of slavery taught America, among other things, was how to devalue Black lives. When I heard him say that, it pierced me in a way unlike many other things ever had. And it has given me the opportunity to ponder that, to research it, to think about it more, write about it, and to discuss it with others. Because what Stevenson is saying is that even beyond the abolishment of the institution of slavery, what America was taught culturally, which of course influenced our politics, is that if a person is not a white person in America, and if a person is not a wealthy person in America, or at minimum, a middle income person in America, then the value of their lives are not that important. So I raise that uh, as a way to have perhaps stimulate conversation a bit later to say that many others believe that one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why uh, black and brown persons, um, men in particular, are not only targeted racially profiled, but are over-policed and harassed is because culturally, some of the best people in America, including law enforcement, have been influenced to devalue black and brown lives, even if they can't help it. This is what has happened to all of us, right? And so let's, let's stretch that because what we understand and realize that it's not just white people who devalue black and brown lives. It's not just white people who devalue uh, uh, poor and working income people, but it's all people devalue people that they perceive or at least they understand to be less than themselves, right? So that's the antebellum period. We go into the reconstruction era when America had this wonderful opportunity to do just what? Reconstruct itself. It, it has been said that uh, at the end of the Civil War, the, the North won the battle, but the South won the, won the war. How come, why? Because we had that small window of opportunity for all of America, but by all of America, I'm really saying the power elite. And by the power elite, I'm talking about the wealthy and the, and the politicians in, in the United States of America had an opportunity to structure America in a way whereby the liberty and the freedom that had been established for people of African descent as laid out in the 13th and the 14th and the 15th Amendment could have been embraced, could have been known, could have been lived out, but we know that did not happen because that window only lasts for about 15 years, right? So interestingly enough, during the Reconstruction era, we had more Black people, people of African descent in the U.S. Congress then than we do now. Right, and it was a rare opportunity for people of African descent to grow and develop their economic portfolio, to grow and develop as, as people, but because Southern states, and we don't wanna just say the Southern states, right? I'm a descendant of a Southerner, but not just the Southern states, but throughout the North as well, but specifically in the Southern state, black codes uh, were established, laws in the South, were allowed to be rewritten and enforced that segregated the races uh, in the United States, which was also influenced in the South. And so this opportunity to create equality 
passed us by as we ushered into this Jim, this Jim Crow era, where throughout every major segment in American life, housing, education, jobs, people of color, African-Americans, and, and I'm going to keep going back to African-Americans, and I'll use Black interchangeably, but we can parse that out and nuance that because those are not the same for certain, right? But when talking about institutional racism, we use African-Americans as the paradigm group because it is the group that is used most prominently to introduce us to institutional racism in America, right? Although they are not the largest ethnic minority group any longer, they are still the paradigm group that unfortunately teaches us what racism is. So segregation that was legal. And we entered into the civil rights era. We, many of us are very familiar with the, the, uh, the, the horrible decade of the 60s, uh, the most violent decade uh, in America's history. Uh, the, the people who uh, sacrificed and gave up so much of themselves, lost their lives, right? And so we thought that we had accomplished a great deal, right? 1964 uh, Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, Interestingly enough, 1965 Civil Rights Act only affirmed the, the right to vote that had been established 100 years prior, right? Why bring that up? We bring that up because this is, again, identifying the history. The history said in 1865, you can vote. But in 1965, a new voting rights law had to be established to say, okay, now we really mean business. Why is that important? because the sociological impact shows us that for 100 years, people of African descent and others found it tremendously difficult to vote in the United States of America. Poll taxes, grandfather clauses that interfered with their liberty to exercise their constitutional right. Very, very important. So what happens? Here we find ourselves in 2020 thinking, how in the world did we get here? We're coming out of of, of two terms of the first African-American president. Haven't we overcome? This is the post-racial America. Absolutely, positively not, right? This is not a post-racial America. That is a myth, right? And it's, it's one that I think is important for us to uh, name so that, uh, and I, I think the, the, the activities in the past few weeks have uh, shouted that out loudly and clearly. And so we find ourselves right now in this major moment of protest and riot that is an expression of anger, rage, frustration, impatience. Perhaps some of it is, it is, is motivated by being enclosed for months because of a pandemic, but it is also the release of people who are just sick and tired of being sick and tired, right? Of having to uh, tiptoe around um, racism in America, um, some be becoming um, worn out with anti-racism work, right? But necessary work. So here we are in an in, in a attempt in many ways looking for strategies that will enable us to work collaboratively 
in a way where we could be honest about the work that we're doing, right? And, and I raise that because, and I'm bringing it to a close, uh, uh, Pastor. I bring that, I raise that because what happens sometimes is when some people dare ask questions or protest, especially, especially if they're African American or especially if they're black, they are labeled as being angry. Well, yeah, many are angry, right? That is true. Civility does not mean dismissal. Civility does not mean inaction. Civility, as I understand it, gives us an opportunity to listen uh, responsibly to one another and work well respectfully with each other. So I hope that that broad but and brief uh, introduction to some of what we attempt to do in our institutional uh, racism course gives you some idea of what we're trying to encourage students uh, to understand. By introducing them to be critical thinkers, we're laying out this information by saying, this is what we know and understand as the research shows us now, ask some questions, challenge this, and then let's respond. That's great, that's a great introduction. And both of us as, <clears throat> as teachers have the benefit of actually being able to see lives change as they begin to understand the history, as yes. they begin to understand the sociology. It's, sure. it's really, some people have said, and I've been teaching uh, at the college for 26 years, they said, are you tired of it yet? Well, certainly are, there are aspects, but I'm never tired of, 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 of having 24 captives mm. at the end of the semester say that they're changed and they see the world in a new way. Absolutely. My question to you is, mm -hmm. as an intellectual, as a teacher, a pedagogue, um, uh, as a pastor, what is the most frustrating piece in the middle of this for you personally? Oh, we. I'm processing this in two ways. I am a 56 year old African American who is experiencing what is happening in a way that gives me an opportunity to mourn for those lives and those families that have been destroyed, while at the same time thanking God for whatever reason that mine have been spared. I've, I've stopped counting the number of times I have been uh, pulled over, questioned by police, mostly for probable cause. And it doesn't matter what neighborhood, what city, what town that I'm in. Absolutely. City, server, doesn't matter. Absolutely. So it hurts. Um, my family in different ways is, is also interracial, but we're mostly African-American. And, and, and we, we struggle with this personally. So I'm frustrated that I have to live with this others who look like me have to live with this, uh, regardless of what their socioeconomic status is, 
be they inner city urban or affluent suburban. And by the way, I'm not affluent suburban. Suburban perhaps, but not affluent. <laughs> so personally, it, 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 it hurts. Professionally, I work in, in, like you, in two different worlds, right? Whoa, academia and the church. Um, it, in, in the college community, as difficult as this is, it is a delicious time to dine because there's freedom to ask questions and to engage and to agree and disagree and to seek out different ways of understanding this and changing lives, as you stated just a moment ago, right? Within the context of the church community, I'm blessed um, to be an associate pastor at Emmanuel locally here in Ridgewood because we are a welcoming, affirming church that is that, that is rather expansive. So we are welcoming and affirming of all of God's creation, right? Whether you wave a rainbow colored flag or an Afro unity red, black, and green flag, right? And while there's so much learning that we as a community are engaged in doing, uh, we are a little frustrated that perhaps we don't know what we should know. And maybe we're not doing yet all that we can do, right? I, I just submitted a graduate paper that focuses on anti-racism with a particular look at whether or not a multicultural, multiracial church can be a model for diversity and inclusivity throughout the world, in America, in our community. Wow, that's huge. So I'm, I'm frustrated at times by being, not, not at Emmanuel, but I'm frustrated at times within my profession knowing that there are fellow clergy persons who don't seem to really understand the magnitude of this. And for those who may, they're being muted, not by the Zoom microphone that's in the corner of their screen, but being muted by their own congregations who do not always give them the freedom and the permission to speak truth to power. Okay, let me push you now. Okay, so now you spoke, spoke as a teacher, you spoke as a, <clears throat> as a, a theologian, if you will, looking at the world through the lens, right? The ecclesia, looking at the world through the lens of church. As a, as a black man mm -hmm. in America, as you ambulate through society, you leave Ridgewood, the comfortable environs of Ridgewood, and you see, and you hear people speak, and you see interactions. And perhaps they, the people, you don't carry your portfolio with you. So they don't see, uh, you know, Professor Lewis, they see you. As you are out in the world, what, what frustrations do you find? Because what we want to do is we want to solve the problems. What we want to do is we want to make this world better. But what we see are some really searing issues. So let's talk about that just a little bit. Racial profiling is real. And it's not limited only to um, a tool that is used by law enforcement. 
it is used by average persons of various race groups and ethnic groups. Um, some research indicate that when we come upon another person, within five seconds, a message is sent to our brain that tells us what it is we think we know about that person's race, their ethnicity, and their class. And immediately, we make a decision on how it is we're going to interact, if we choose to interact with that person, how we're going to uh, treat that person, or unfortunately, at times, mistreat those persons. So that's tricky. Mm -hmm. We can switch, as an African-American man, uh, as a professional person, as a person who lives in a suburb, um, I, I move about and live as I live and, and interact with others with, with relative freedom. But I also have ample opportunity to interact and engage uh, in uh, various ethnic minority groups, right? Be they different groups or African-American groups or Arabic groups when I'm teaching uh, in, in inner cities. And what I in encounter, what I experience is trepidation, uh, anxiety, uh, fear, even when it looks as though we are composed. Um, most, if not all of us, are aware that we are performers every single day. Yeah. Yeah, and we and we go into performance mode, but be behind that performance is is our very real anxieties, right? Uh, yeah. I, at times, I am I I feel safest when I'm wearing a collar, not because that's any indication of perfection, but for many. Um, they identify that symbol with a profession that at least attempts to say and do what is right and good. And so I'm not a bad guy when I'm, when I'm wearing my collar. I'm not a bad guy when I have my clergy decal in my car. I don't get, I don't get pulled over as often. I don't absolutely. get ticketed. Absolutely. So, you know. Who, who so, should live like that? Yeah, no, that, no, absolutely <laughs> right. Keep your collar in your car, right? <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, for your safety, um, sure. you know, your mental safety, you know, Dr. Kenneth Clark talked about, right? Mm. You know, he passed away uh, a couple of decades ago, but Dr. Kenneth Clark was a great psychiatrist who looked at the social psychology that, uh, <clears throat> that we're surrounded with and the level of anxiety, um, you know, that, that we carry. But, you know, as I look at contemporary issues, for instance, uh, uh, I posted on my Facebook about uh, that they reduced by 95% the polling sites in Kentucky, uh, Mitch McConnell's uh, jurisdiction. Sure. And so there is in Louisville one voting site for 616,000 people. Yes. The jurisdiction with, which holds one half of Kentucky's black population. Sure, sure. One polling place, right? Yes. And so in a certain kind of way, in a in a uh, in a, a wonderful and comfortable and wretched sense of mental compromise, if you don't know that, you can kind of move around easily, sure. you know. 
and just like the 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 uh, the, the hot topic or the, the 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 hot want may be the avocado at Whole Foods. But if you happen to know what's going on historically, and you're looking at this and you say, "Is this 1964?" Right. Right. Yes. So, you know. So well, let's find a bridge to march. Right? right? How can you have a polling place and be sensitive? So we see these things replicated again and sure. again and again. Yeah. And it is, um, it's, it's difficult because, and I, I want to ask you a question from this, when you have people of goodwill, of every color, who mm -hmm. say, what can I do? Sometimes it's difficult because it's in the air. It's in the water. Yes. And, 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 and the poison creeps up in the creature who has, who has drank it. And you don't know. How, how do we unpoison this? I see mm. that wrong. Well, sure. maybe, you know, a policeman, a policewoman would have drank the poison. Perhaps mm. a, a polling chief would have drank the poison. It's really very difficult, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. Which is, which is why it, it, it ultimately comes back to a spiritual issue. <laughs> right right sure. because because it really is about a level of if you will pardon evil right mm. that that amplifies our sense of greed it amplifies our lust for power mm, right sure. and our, our lust for just kind of being our natural human lust to be on top of someone else but wait a minute i have now the permission that you can actually put your foot on uh, their knee on the neck of these people here. I'm an immigrant and I've come over in the early 20th century. Give me your tired, your poor, your humble masses yearning to be free, the wretched refuge of your teeming shores. Send these to whom this tempest starts to me. I lift my, right? And you come here and the one thing you know is I can make it if I work hard. Mm. But those people over there, you're already a step ahead and don't worry I, you're gonna have you're gonna you are going to have this temporary place that we're gonna call a ghetto but if you work hard <laughs> right? right right but you'll never be one of them right remember right. that old, remember that old saying wait a minute i'm 21 what is it 21 white and free or something like that do you remember that so some I'm people know it was this thing, and it was when I was young. I mean, people just say, "I'm 21. I'm 21 white. Somebody's gonna write it in." And so there's always this sense, and that's what I was speaking of when I was asking about your frustration, right? Mm -hmm. Because what we see is is educators, and or just people who are interested in the world. Uh, we see these things happening again and again. Sure. We see, you know, um, you know. On Juneteenth in Tulsa, mm, right. <laughs> right? We see these insults again and again and again mm -hmm, and again, mm -hmm. and they are so subtle. They are not as they, they see. Everybody's waiting for the hoses and the and the dogs. Mm. You know, the knee on the neck was a hose and a dog. See, sure. everybody can relate to that. Everyone Obviously. can say that that's wrong, right? But <laughs> but but what what they can't put their hand on is the sin, that poison which we all drink a little bit of, mm, mm. and you actually alluded to it to it as well because everybody drinks that poison. Oh no doubt, no doubt. Right. So sometimes we can even drink a little of that poison. Oh, without question. Listen, when, when we <laughs> when we look at what the, what the media has done and does with regard to uh, black people, black bodies, 
right? Whether you're looking at uh, cable news or, uh, or internet news, black persons are presented as thugs, as criminals. And, and if white people are getting that message loud and clear, they are not the only ones. That's right. Black and brown people have also been conditioned to view each other as criminals and thugs, right? And I don't, I don't find any of this to be coincidental. Absolutely. The United States of America's uh, formation and development is not a coincidence. <laughs> we, we didn't get here by happenstance, right? And there, there have always been and still are people who are genuinely interested in their own wealth and their own power. And if that means finding systematic ways to oppress others, even when it doesn't look like they're being oppressed, then so be it, right? The United States of America, our population is 5% of the world's population. Our wealth prison system, we have more, over 25% of the persons incarcerated in the world are incarcerated in the United States of America, right? Because we have an over-criminalized culture and we've been nurtured in our country to, to view other people as criminals, to be suspicious of anyone that is that, that, we're, that we're not familiar with, right? And so what even what we've done in our country is we've created the cultural uh, myth of law and order, right? So when a, when a political candidate announces that he or she, mostly men, that they are the law and order candidate, there's, there's two messages that are sent simultaneously. Absolutely. White voters go, some, I'm qualifying this, right, <laughs> obviously. I got you. Some white voters say, that's my guy because he is going to protect me and keep me safe and keep all those bad black and brown people off of my streets and out of my town. Black and brown people go, here we go again. Here we go. Some, some, somebody else who, who is going to influence white voters to become okay with contributing more of their tax dollars to over-militarize local law enforcement agencies to keep me under control. And let me stop you right there because that is so important. And this is something important to understand. Every community, white, brown, black, wants law and order. Absolutely. Everybody Absolutely. wants it, right? But when that dog whistle is, <laughs> that dog whistle goes out that says, I'm for law and order, y'all. Right. No, right? That they're going to be a they're going to be a set of of a, a, a set of a links that go out in terms of a policy that entail this sense of law. We saw it with Nixon, you mm -hmm. know that's that that was his thing. We saw sure. Reagan, right. We saw Bush. You know, we we see it every cycle. Sure. There's a moment of qualification. There's a moment of qualification yes. in which you have to placate mm -hmm. and it's almost so embedded that we don't include it in our language you know we don't but it's embedded that you know you have to I, when bill clinton was running remember there's this language that he used willie horton 
That's right. And he needed to say, listen, I, I know I'm liberal. I sound liberal, but we know. <laughs> you know? Well, he, he, he had to compete. You, you know, That's right. the, 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 the uh, I'm forgetting the, the specific name, but the Get Tough on Crime Bill of 1994, uh, Three Strikes, You're Out laws. What, what, what his administration did was up the ante That's that right. the, uh, the Republican yeah, Party had already established because he knew in order to get elected, he had to prove to voters that he too could be a tough law and order candidate, right? It's, it's, it's a strategy that has worked for to get people elected, to get them reelected, but to the detriment of people of, 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 of African-American descent specifically. And so people are uncomfortable uh, interjecting uh, politics into a conversation most times, no matter when we're talking, but especially when we talk about racism. And I think that if we're not honest and talk about the, 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 the uh, political impact on racism, then we're not being honest. And we're not giving ourselves permission to understand how it is that we, 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 we get to this place. Because if we do that, then it may just help us to hold future uh, political candidates accountable so that their platform clearly, clearly um, lays out one that is going to be diverse and inclusive, right? So you have to talk about politics and, and because you just cannot get around this. Ronald Reagan, did, Ronald Reagan got elected because of what we now know as the Southern strategy, right? right. Sweeping through, what's, it's, ha it's happening right now. When, when you say to, to your followers, they're attacking our culture, our heritage, come on. <laughs> yeah. I have first semester college students who get that, right? I, yeah, I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of questions, and so we'll, we'll get there. Um, but there's just two things that I'm just going to say real quick, and we don't have to discuss them. But one of the things is that, uh, you know, we see right now um, so much divisive language. Sure. And then we have, around our president, uh, we have a set of Black ministers who will say that, you know, no one's done anything more, right? Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. So, you know, we need another half an hour. Um, you know, so, so that, that is, uh, that's a difficult piece. You know what, let's just jump into some of the questions and then we'll bring everything else out. Sure, hey, sure. Sarah. Okay. Thanks. Um, so Arturo, there was a question actually that relates to what you were just talking about, about policing. Um, and it's sort of what is the nexus of like convict labor, Jim Crow laws, over-policing, militarization of police. Can you just sort of speak to that history? Yeah, well, in the, 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 thir the 13th Amendment to the Constitution has a loophole that uh, allows government or criminal justice systems to essentially enslave people that they view are violators of laws. And so what you do is you incarcerate them. Because let's remember, immediately after the Civil War, right, that economy did not automatically switch over from an agricultural economy to an industrial economy. You still need labor, labor and, and you prefer to use free labor, at bare minimum, cheap labor. So what do you do? You, you arrest and incarcerate these former enslaved people and you put them right back onto the plantation to do the work 
And even in our um, criminal justice system, the um, the the um, incarceration complex that we have that are, that's not all public, right? At, at one point, the fastest and largest growing industry in the United States of America was prisons, right? Yep. To incarcerate people, we do we do the work of penalizing people, not rehabilitating people, and taking people away from their families and their communities on minor charges. And the people who are are the the blackest, the brownest, and the poorest are the people who cannot afford to lawyer up, uh, so they they. Uh, accept plea bargains so that they can limit the amount of time that they're going to be in, incarcerated. And so it, it's what Michelle Alexander describes as the new Jim Crow. Yeah. What we've done is we found an, another way, a new way to overly incarcerate uh, black and brown people to get them out of the way. Now, it's let me just say this last thing, sir, about that. What many of us believe is that Besides the evil, Matt, that you referred to a moment ago that steer, that steers so much of this, that if you remove black and brown people from the job market, they're not competing for capital in America. And, and, and sadly, we know that uh, our economic system of capitalism requires people to compete against one another in, in ways that can uh, be very, very horrific and detrimental even to one's life. So you get those people out of the way and they're not competing with you, but you also have created, you also have created a, another way to generate revenue for your economic system. You're building prisons, you're, 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 you're hiring um, uh, persons to uh, patrol prisons and to keep persons who are uh, on lockdown under control. And, and, and in some ways- Prison labor too, prison labor. It's, it's prison labor, right? It, it's that, but it's also a way of generating the jobs that you no longer have because many of the manufacturing jobs that help to grow a thriving economy post-World War II no longer exists. So you've got to employ people. How do you employ them? You employ them by, uh, by overseeing uh, other people who are most vulnerable. Thank you. We have a, another question that I'm going to read verbatim. Um, and this is from Karen who says, the Alvin Ailey Outreach Program seemed to get it right by instilling a love, a love of people of all ages and ethnicities of the beauty of black movement, music, and history. Sorry, that's my children. Uh, do you agree? What can we do to promote more of that kind of emotionally unifying experience for people of all economic, social, and racial backgrounds? Mm -hmm. Well, what we're, what we're describing here is multiculturalism, right? And, and, and this expression is through dance, right? So multiculturalism is not limited to, to dance and song and food. Multiculturalism is what happens when we have an opportunity to learn about cultures of all kinds in a way that does not value one more than the other. 
because if learners have that opportunity to peer into the lives of others that they are perhaps not in close proximity to, and they understand that in the United States of America, there took, it took many different kinds of people to grow and develop this country. Early European settlers, the formerly enslaved people, the Mexicans who were here in, on this continent before any European ever arrived, uh, the Chinese, the Japanese, and the list goes on and on and on. So as a learner, a child entering into a structured uh, learning system, let's call it school, is, is taught that the United States of America is a country that is comprised of many different people who have made these kinds of contributions. One of the things that it does is it gives us an opportunity to value the lives of those people. I, I, would, I, think, I think that if we told a better and more true story about enslavement, we would have a greater appreciation and respect for people of African descent. I think that if we did not historically portray uh, uh, Native people as savages, we'd have a, greater, a better relationship and greater respect for people of Native descent. <laughs> so that's what I'm, what I'm meaning by multiculturalism. And by the way, just, just to throw in something, um, one of the most effective things when people are talking about defunding the police, and defunding the police doesn't mean taking all the money from the police. However, it should be stated that in many of our local uh, governments, that 60% of the budget is, is police, right? Sure. And so sure. what they're saying is, are there ways to reallocate this so that we're now looking at public safety as opposed to uh, police. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, one of the greatest things that I have seen is <clears throat> the efforts, uh, and I've seen the efforts in Bergen County, also in Passaic County, for uh, police to integrate in the communities. They come sure. to the churches, go to community. That is so effective to see them beyond the blue, to see them mm -hmm. as people. They see us as people, um, us meaning the citizenry. Absolutely. And it is so important. That's the kinds of things that, uh, those are the kinds of things that can be reallocated. That's right. Uh, and so that it too is part of multiculturalism. That's right. Sadly, there was a time when women's voices were not listened to. They weren't valued the way that they should have been to the point where uh, when law enforcement responded to uh, calls and claims that women made about domestic uh, abuse and violence, they weren't taken seriously. Absolutely. We got to a place where legislation was enacted, the Violence Against Women's Act, funds law enforcement agencies, not only with weaponry, uh, but teaches them how to better understand that part of our population, which is so important. Sounds strange and unusual to us, but I don't know about you, but I think most people would like to live in a community knowing that their law enforcement representatives are trained to understand and take seriously 
claims made by all people. That's right. That's right. And that was at the essence. And I, I, I noticed so many other questions, but that was at the essence of the Central Park um, mm. a lady. She says, I'm going to tell them that an African-American. So what she's saying is they'll believe me before Ooh. they believe you. Yeah. Right? She, she used her race as a weapon. Absolutely. Yeah. She used her race as a weapon, right? Knowing that historically, a part of white privilege in America has given um, well, white women, and, and, and I'm, I, I have to qualify most everything I say because all white women are not Absolutely. that woman, right? Absolutely. Thank God, <laughs> right? But, but she, she understood her own power. At least she thought she did and was going to attempt to weaponize that to terrorize the life of an African-American man. Yeah, yeah. And you know, if, hey, hey, listen, if, maybe if she had come to Jersey and made that call, who knows, right? <laughs> <laughs> New Jersey. That's a joke. That's a joke. All right, what's the next question? Um, okay, so this one is specifically directed to you, Arturo. Um, and you, I guess, we're talking about um, how we make assumptions pretty quickly about how we're gonna treat or interact or respond to another person. And this question is, do children have that same sort of rapid fire calculation of how they're going to interact with others? Some years ago, I had a friend that relocated from the state of Washington to New Jersey, white, brought his wife, two young children and their dog. And I was working for an organization and we were helping the family unpack in Wayne, New Jersey, not far from here. And whenever I would bring items off the truck into the house, the dog would, 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 would constantly bark. So finally, this new colleague said to me, I apologize, my dog is a racist. He said, back home in the state of Washington, my, my, my dog would never bark at our white family members or white friends, but whenever he, our dog saw a black person, he'd bark. And, and I thought about that. We made you know, light of it and, and laughed about it, but we had a conversation about this later on. And, and what we uh, attempted to understand was that perhaps that dog barked at a black person because that dog rarely saw a black person. Now, I'm not, I'm not equating children with dogs, but what I'm saying is Dogs can drink poison too. Dogs can drink poison too. What I'm attempting to say is that racism is, is modeled and not just taught Right, so children, thank God for children who are not born to be racist, but if children are living in isolated communities in uh, very protective families and they're not integrated in a more diverse and inclusive community, they quickly and easily learn power dynamics and, and they know who is in control, who is, the, who is most influential, who it is that I need to align myself with. Children learn social capital way before they get to college. <laughs> and so are children racist? No. Can children be influenced to think in terms of race and prejudice and discrimination? Absolutely. But through sociology, we teach that there are primary institutions that influence the way we think and therefore behave, right? Our family, religion, media, politics, uh, our peer groups. And it's in those institutions, especially during our formative years, that we really get introduced to what our values are going to be. And it is from our values 
that we live our lives. Yeah, I will say um, uh, there are studies that show that children as young as two to four have internalized racial bias, especially white children who have already internalized their white privilege. Mm -hmm. um, so just I put a I put a link to an article, just a quick one on a quick search, but that is a, that's a real thing. Um, uh, so this one's also for you, Arturo. Um, uh, Martin asks, uh, he says that Mac um, mentioned recently that the African-American community in Ridgewood um, is most likely shrinking over time. And so the question is, Arturo, have you noticed that? Have you observed that as well? And what does it mean for Bergen County in general? I'm a big believer in diversity and inclusivity. And so when populations are homogenous, that may meet the satisfaction and level of comfort for some. I, I'm not, I don't believe that it enables those communities to be vibrant, thriving communities. I think that we are our better selves when we are interacting with and integrating, uh, integrated with many other selves. And so um, if the population of people of color, African-Americans in particular, is, are, are, are dropping, um, then we're, we're going to experience a, a different quality of life by just not having that kind of interaction. Now, um, I don't know all of the reasons for some of this. Uh, reverse migration, gosh, uh, began to, um, take off in the late 1980s. And I think that what happens sometimes uh, for ethnic minority people, if they think that they are not welcomed, if they think that they are uh, living in places where their um, level of degree of anxiety is going to only increase, then they're gonna seek other places. They're gonna, they're gonna self-segregate. They're gonna go to places and spaces that are going to be uh, more comfortable and convenient for them. Um, certainly people have the freedom to choose, they, they have the freedom to choose if they have the resources to afford to live where uh, they select. Uh, I think we'd want to live in places that uh, provide as much diversity and inclus inclusivity as possible. And we talk about that on Wednesdays, by the way, Martin Walker, uh, weighs in and says there's economic reasons. It's a it's a census fact that we're half of what we were a decade ago. We are 1.9%, one, uh, I think it's 1.9%. Uh, and that is down a uh, half uh, from 10 years ago. And, and I fear that in the next census, it will be even less. Mm -hmm. But you're, I agree, you're, we're absolutely less when we are less. And there's an economic driver to this. Sure. And there's also the piece that a, 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 a parents, uh, black parents, they want the very best education they uh, can give, but they also understand that part of a good education is a diversity in the population. That's so right. they're going to go to those places where there is both quality and diversity. That's and, right. So, you know, and they weigh that with you know with the economic you know um, <clears throat> you know juxtapose of of the 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 uh, the taxes and the school taxes. You know, Ridgewood is is uh, is becoming Mostly. harder harder for a diverse uh, population. But that, sure. that's, we'll talk about that again some other time. 
Keep on coming, Sarah. Um, so there's a question sort of related to this, which is if you don't have diversity in your area, how do you how do you teach diversity in school? How do you grow a sense of diversity if you're actually lacking in diversity? I think the um, school system as a socialization institution is one whereby no family can get around. If curriculums are diverse, and I mean real diversity, again, I'm not talking about once, once a year celebrating African American History Month or uh, Latino Heritage Month or whatever the ethnic group is, but I'm talking about a very integrated curriculum that teaches the history and the uh, contributions of different groups is a way uh, to teach that di diversity. And, and it has to be done uh, with very real intentionality and sincerity and not something that gets glossed over because that's what we describe as the hidden curriculum. The hidden, the hidden curriculum is not embedded uh, in bold type uh, within textbooks, but the hidden curriculum is what happens when uh, students uh, can hear and see the value of what's being presented. So if diversity studies, I'm gonna say diversity studies, if multicultural education is not uh, systematically uh, taught throughout the different levels of education, and is not taught uh, with sincerity and, and with great worth, the hidden curriculum part of that, again, is what happens when students mentally check out because they recognize, oh, this, is, this really isn't that important, right? Because what's more important is make sure that my, my reading comprehension scores are high, right? Because I need, I, need to, I need to get a good number on the, on the ACT and SATs because although, um, I'm hearing that they're gonna take them away. It's not going anywhere yet, right? But that's not building, uh, growing, nurturing uh, the best human beings. You know, when I was, when I went to high school, uh, we had wood shop, metal shop, there was auto shop, there was uh, domestic, uh, I forgot what, what the home, home economics. Yeah, home economics. There was all this stuff, right? And it wasn't just in Hackensack. It was all over Burn County. It wasn't just all over Burn County. It was in New Jersey. It wasn't just New Jersey. It was all over the country. There are goals that an education, speaking of a hidden curriculum, have for you. When you enter K and come out 12, there are things that you know, that you're assumed to know. Yes. And it's your, it's your intentionality that will say what those things are. You might know 30 years ago about how to make a bookshelf. Sure. <laughs> right? Sure. But 30 years later, it's about STEM. Right. You might know about the Westward movement and the gold mm -hmm. rush, but not know about the Trail of Tears. Right. right. And so it is what you intend. You may not have many Black people in Ridgewood schools, but if your intention is to make better citizens, you still teach it. You still Absolutely. those things. Right? Absolutely. So your intention that every professor has a syllabus that they give out. They have an intention that when they exit, they're going to know this X, Y, and Z. That's when right. the school system becomes intentional, a school and a school system, that we are going to graduate citizens 
who have yes. an understanding of the world and ah, here comes the fearful part, and are going to make the world a more progressive, be world changers. Yes. When we have that kind of prog progressive teaching, we have a whole new standard. And That's at right. the same time, and when I say that, I don't, it, sometimes it, you know, it can seem like that language is leftist. And it's not. You know, it's what human. kind of person do you want your child to be? It's human. It is. It's human. Thank God for ethnic history be it African-American history, Absolutely. Korean history, that's beautiful. It should be, American history ought to be a compilation of all kinds of people, again, their contributions, exactly. their, their development, because this is all of who we are. That's right. And you know, when I teach about, when I teach about Irish history and the, the, and the, the, the two movements, major movements, right, yes. uh, into the States and their interface this yes. is with Africans, right? And the Irish and the Scottish and the Africans and the synthesis that happened in the Appalachians yes. and in the South, which, which created uh, which created Southern language, the linguistical piece, which created Southern cooking. It sure. was the synthesis of this stuff. So we're not teaching one over the other, but when you start to be true and say, listen, I want to create a world citizen that has yes. an honest understanding of what the world is and with the intention of making it better. Now we're talking, you know? Absolutely. Okay, I'm sorry, Sarah, go ahead, I preach. <laughs> don't, don't apologize. Don't, don't apologize. <laughs> Do not apologize. Um, I actually have a question, sort of a follow-up on this stuff, and I'm not sure how to ask it, so I wanna uh, apologize in advance. Um, but I, but I, your point about intention feels really important to me because there are so many ways that we can be consumers of other people's culture in a way that actually isn't building multiculturalism, it's appropriation, it's observation, it's voyeurism, it's exoticization, right? So it feels like that, that intention piece is both the most important and in some ways the most elusive um, because it seems so, like, it seems like in some ways the history has been a history of voyeurism or, you know, and I was thinking about this early on with the Alvin Ailey question too, that like, in some ways, there's a piece that's like, I'm going to pat myself on the back for like listening to jazz and going to see Alvin Ailey when that's not, right? Like, I, yeah. As opposed to understanding that experience to be your experience. Exactly. You haven't yet understood. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's the part of your American experience that you haven't yet been exposed to, right? So you have to be careful that it's not cultural tourism. Right. Yeah. That's Amen. a good right. Yes. Exactly. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's a great phrase. I'm going to jump in here for a second. And so the protesters, the kids, I really want to, you know, spend a couple of minutes talking about them because I think what they were trying to accomplish is noble and good and all of that. Um, one of the things that they were saying is that they uh, feel cheated. These are Ridgewood High School graduates. Um, I believe, I'm not quite sure. The chief of police told me that that's the information that she got. But um, so what what they want is to have more black teachers in our school here in Ridgewood in our schools and they want to have um, like you were saying a better better history lessons and so it was interesting to me um, that 
they're really passionate about this. They really want this to happen. And they want it to happen so badly that they disregarded what the chief of police told them that they could do. She told them that they could go and they could march in this area and that area. And they disregarded exactly what she said. And they went up and down with their bullhorn and there were people dining outside and they tried to grab them out of their chairs and march with them and tell them, open up your pocketbook. What have you done to fight oppression? I'm proud of them that they want to do good. And, and when they had their sign up in the park, I had to move it because my things were, you know, I was in the middle of a project and they said, why are you against Black Lives Matter? Why, what are you doing? You know, and I said, let's talk about this, you know, and they, they just were so passionate about what they wanted to accomplish, but it was so scattered and all over the place that they didn't want to actually hear how to go about this in, mm -hmm. I, mean, I know either but i mean i've kind of been marching for most of my life so you know and i was trained by the naacp on how to do it peacefully and respectfully and all of that and so when they kept asking me these questions about you know what i've done i was trying to help them so they could kind of collect their message and they could do better at it mm -hmm. you know offend people so what would your suggestion be for kids that want to accomplish the goals that i said in the beginning. They want to have more diversity in their teachers and they want to have a broader curriculum in their history. Mm -hmm. I think you already started. Um, you, you affirmed you affirmed their, their anger, you affirmed their frustration, and perhaps you affirmed their their impatience. And that's that's all important. That's all very valid. Um, it, 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 it's associated um, in, in part, perhaps, um, with this sense of being uh, denied what they think is important. So therefore, they've been neglected and, and let down. And so that has to be affirmed. Now, at, at no time do we ever affirm um, behavior that violates another person's uh, freedom and another person's uh, physical space to the point of harm. Just don't go there, right? Right. right, right. I'm thinking about a classroom situation, uh, uh, many actually, when uh, we're having conversations similar to this and students, mostly white students, I've never heard, of, I've never heard a student of color who, who, who stated, why am I just learning these things? White students what, quite often will, <laughs> either stand up in rage or sl slump down in their seats and ask, why am I 20, 21, and yeah, I'm yeah. just learning Absolutely. about all of this? And to, I, I tell you that when I hear them say that, I have to, I have to grab a hold of my own emotions because as a, not just as a, as a person who tries to teach, but as a, as a parent, I, I feel their pain in that moment, right? Mm -hmm. And we know that our, our, our emotions are very real. We're, we're, we're birthed with these and they are developed over the, throughout the, our different stages of development. And uh, history even shows us throughout different social movements that younger, the younger population, whoo, if they sense that they have been denied Especially, this is the, this is an odd thing. Especially if they've been denied 
by the people that they have trusted, those people who said that they were looking out for their best interest, whoa, it feels like betrayal. You Cal Berkeley, you Cal Berkeley, Kent State, Rutgers. Oh yeah. You uh, Morgan State. When we, yes. when we think romantically about the 60s, yes. what we think about are those those building takeovers in college. Yes. By folks who said Syracuse University. Absolutely. Right, <laughs> right? So we see every generation that angst. This is the same, it's exactly the angst. same angst. And it's messy. Yeah. But I Arturo said it, you know, it what do you do? You keep talking. Yeah, that's the beauty of this. This the beauty of this is that. <laughs> I mean, express that, don't hurt anybody, but express that rage. And then when, and, and, and we're going to put those arms around you virtually until we can touch you and for real. And we're going to say, we love you enough to work together with you Thanks. and our school system to make certain that the curriculum that's being put before you is one that is honest and that is real and is going to inform you in a way that is going to make you, help to make you that citizen that, that Reverend Matt Brandon talked about a moment ago. It's the ago. same dynamic with Reverend Martin Luther King, SCLC and SNCC. Right? Absolutely, that, exactly. <laughs> the young ones, yes. the young ones wanted to go crazy, right? That's and right. SCLC said, no, this is the way we used to do it. And they had real, it was almost fisticuffs, you know. That's right, that's How right. How should we do this thing? That's and right. what they insisted on, John Lewis and Andrew Young and That's Martin right. Luther King, let's just keep talking. That's right. right. That's right. And That's so, right. Well, I definitely want to thank you guys for talking. And, um, you know, when Mac and I started this, we said, you know, it, it's not a political conversation. It's not a religious conversation. It's a spiritual conversation. And it all needs to start there. And when we can get there, and we can open up our hearts. We can mm. open up our ears and our minds and our eyes. We can listen generously and we can listen with the idea that the person speaking can change our mind if we tap into that spiritual place. So I really want to thank you both. From the Jeannie, can I just share one, one um, um, sure. moment with our group here this evening that um, I'm, I'm thinking of? Um, just a couple of weeks ago, I had to go over to Valley Hospital. And uh, you know, when you enter in, you're, you're, you're covered. You have to have a mask on. Mm -hmm. And this was shortly after the murder of George Floyd. And when I entered into the hospital, I could see 20 to 25 feet away, a tall uh, police officer, young white man in mask and gloves. And I got nervous. I I shouldn't have gotten nervous, but I I I'm in performance mode. But I, I still get nervous uh, quite often when I see uh, law enforcement. And he approached me uh, to uh, bring me into the hospital to make certain uh, that I get screened before entering in. I'm wearing a mask. He's wearing a mask. And he looked at me. He says, Professor Lewis, I know you. I'm thinking, who is this six foot five, 225 pound young white man wearing this, this uniform? He says, I took an institutional racism course with you two years ago. Man, that was a good class. I'm so oh, glad I took that. And boy, do we need feeling. that now. The best feeling. Yeah. The best That's feeling. great. Yeah. That's why we do it. That's right. Yeah.
Well, thank you guys, both, both of you for putting yourselves out there and lending us your time and helping us uh, see life from your perspective because it has been invaluable. I, I really thank you so much. And, you know, like we said before, you know, the most important thing is that we keep the conversation alive. We keep um, doing what we should do to keep our foot carefully on the gas, to keep moving this agenda so uh, there can be some racial equality in, in our world. And Jeannie, I do want to say that for those, uh, it was really very successful last week, those who want to uh, continue the conversation uh, and have an opportunity to speak, I just simply facilitate it. You come on uh, my Facebook page, we do a Zoom on Wednesday, Wednesday at 8.30, where we just kind of talk about whatever that is on the minds of those who, who join in. And it's been very, very successful. And many times we end up talking about some of the things we, we talked on Monday. So if this is, uh, if, if these ideas are pregnant within you and mm. you want to give birth to some uh, action or some conversation, please do 8.30 uh, on, in my Zoom uh, this Wednesday. Thank you. Thank Thanks you, everybody. Bye. Thank you Amen. so Thank much you. everybody for showing up. And we'll see you everyone. next week with, uh, Pastor Sarah Lindsay from the Unitarian, Unitarian Society. Alone. Looking forward to that. Looking All right, you guys, take care. Take care. Bye.